Welcome to the Michael Myers Minute, where we delve into the 1978 horror classic Halloween one minute at a time. I'm your host, Robert Black. All alone again today. Because there's a lot of stuff in my notes and I didn't want to have a guest and then talk over them the entire time. Plus, before I even get into minute 17, I want to talk about a thought I had recently while listening to the uh, now-playing podcasts retrospective on the Halloween series that they did back in it's 2009 when H2 came out. Specifically, when they were talking about Michael killing Sam and Spitz in Halloween 5. Like, why did he do that? And as much as I so often hate it when people come up with their own theories on movies, I came up with one. And it goes all the way back to why did Michael kill Christopher Hastings? Why did he kill Amy Brackett? Why did he kill Linda Vanderklok and Bob Sims? Why does he kill all those people at the hospital on Halloween 2? Why all those people that are not Jamie Lloyd in 4 and 5? Those people who aren't Stephen in 6? And it's this. Maybe Michael didn't want to kill Laurie in the first two films. And he didn't want to kill Jamie in 4 and 5. He killed all those other people because maybe all of those sacrifices would be enough to satiate the drive he felt deep inside to go after these blood relatives. Like, if I kill Cynthia's friends, maybe the curse passed down from Enda and maintained by the Cult of the Thorn would not make me kill little Cynthia or Cynthia's little girl barely older than I was when I was first driven to kill. Maybe if I kill all of these other people in Haddonfield, I won't have to kill her either. Maybe Michael's human side has been in conflict with Enda's curse all these years. That's pretty much it, the theory. But it would explain all the side murders that don't connect to the ongoing through line. Minute 17 begins in a classroom. Elementary school classroom posing as high school classroom. The teacher is droning on about fate. Michael is parked outside on McLean Street, Alhambra, California. Lori has good reason to be distracted here, but when called... Lori responds. Costain wrote that fate was somehow related only to religion, where Samuels felt that fate was like a natural element, like earth, air, fire, and water. Teacher, off screen, a teacher from Charlie Brown. That's right, Samuels definitely personified fate. That's not what personified means. Even if Samuels did personify fate, Lori's answer didn't demonstrate that. <laughs> The teacher continues, In Samuel's writing, fate is immovable, like a mountain it stands where man passes away. Fate never changes. We can be sure that this is deliberate, because Costain and Samuels were made up for this scene. Halloween is all about fate. I will probably say later in this film, it's all about something else. Like teenagers playing adults, adults and authority figures being powerless in the face of some kinds of danger. Something. But let's talk about fate. I wrote in my blog one of the many days I watched Halloween. The lesson is not random, not supposed to be meaningless and forgettable. This is Carpenter's and Hill's point. Michael Myers in this film is an agent of fate. Whether fate is evil or not, well, that depends on if you side with Costain or Loomis in attributing fate to being related to religion. Or you side with Samuels that fate is a natural element. Either way, fate is immovable, unstoppable. Fate never changes. John Carpenter tells Deadline regarding sequels and remakes, quote, I didn't think there was any more story and I didn't want to do it again. All of my ideas were for the first Halloween. There shouldn't have been any more. I'm flattered by the fact that people want to remake them, but they remake everything these days. So it doesn't make me that special. 
But Michael Myers was an absence of character, and yet all the sequels are trying to explain that. That's silliness. It just misses the whole point of the first movie to me. He's a part person, part supernatural force. The sequel's rooted around in motivation. I thought that was a mistake. However, I couldn't stop them from making sequels. So my agent said, why don't you become an executive producer and share the revenue? But I had to write the second movie, and every night I sat there and wrote with a six-pack of beer trying to get through this thing. And I didn't do a very good job. But that was it. I couldn't do any more. End quote. Because here, in this first film, Michael is not an agent of the Cult of the Thorn. He isn't driven by mislaid lust inherited from some Celtic kid named Enda. And he isn't Laurie Strode's brother. He is simply Michael Myers. Fifteen years ago, he murdered his sister because he was jealous, because she neglected him to be with her boyfriend, because his parents were gone and he thought it would be fun, because there was something fundamentally broken inside him, or yes, because he was purely, simply evil. Michael Myers here is an agent of fate, a faceless monster, a shape. Here's something that may surprise you. Well, it would have surprised you if I had remembered where I had put this in my notes while talking about Minute 14. But here's more detail, anyway. In this film, Dr. Loomis never says Michael or Myers. Not counting the added-for-TV scenes, three people refer to the Myers house, Laurie, Tommy, and Sheriff Brackett. Morgan Strode calls it the Myers place. Taylor, the graveyard keeper, says Judith Myers, Myers, and Myers, Judith Myers, and Judith Myers, the name Michael, is only said three times. Twice by Judith, and once by Peter Myers. That is all. We in the audience speak about Michael with more familiarity than the doctor who spent hours with him every day for 15 years. But in the script, and in the end credits, he is the shape. In minute 90, we'll see credits for Michael Age 23, Tony Moran, and Michael Age 6, Will Sandin, of course. But together, they get about 35 seconds of screen time. The shape is everything else. John Kenneth Muir writes in The Tao of Michael Myers, quote, Michael's true motives, just like his concealing ivory face mask, are not entirely filled in, not fully circumscribed. His personality and purpose seem oddly incomplete, and thus the shadowy, featureless mask fully and trenchantly reflects our inability to conceptualize or understand the thing that he represents. From this lack of understanding grows the seeds of terror. Why does Michael kill? Is he the boogeyman? What drives him? How does he survive point-blank bullet strikes? As in life, Halloween provides no easily digestible answer to myriad questions about mortality and murder, destiny, choice, and chance. End quote. And, quote, This revelation of Michael as agent of fate opens up the whole boogeyman argument that perhaps there is actually a fifth natural element, earth, air, fire, water, and evil. And that Michael, as a representative of this natural force, is thus unstoppable. In Kitty slang, the boogeyman. The film's discussion of fate contextualizes Michael not as a supernatural avenger, but as a heightened natural one. He is not magical, but rather a force as natural and as essential as air or water. End quote. In the discussion of Minute 8, I talked about Michael Myers as cosmic entity. Without any of the sequels, what else can he be? He is a mindless, faceless shape murderous. He is out there. He can't be reasoned with. He can't be bargained with. He doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear, and he absolutely will not stop ever. To paraphrase Kyle Reese, Michael is fate. Michael is death itself. He comes for all of us eventually. Think about it like this. 
if Lori doesn't walk a different route to school this morning to drop off those keys, then Michael doesn't see her. Michael doesn't see her. He doesn't follow her later, doesn't stalk her, and Annie doesn't go inside to watch Linda and Bob having sex. He doesn't kill any of them. So who then does he kill? He has already made the choice to return to Haddonfield on this day. As Loomis describes Michael in minute 58, quote, I watched him for 15 years sitting in a room, staring at a wall, not seeing the wall, looking past the wall, looking at this night, inhumanly patient, waiting for some secret silent alarm to trigger him off. Death has come to your little town, Sheriff. You can either ignore it or you can help me to stop it, end quote. This thing had returned to Haddonfield no matter what. It is only looking back at this film, especially in context of its sequels, its copycats, that we can really put motive to Michael. Within the film, it may simply be that Laurie happened by and she's saying, I wish I had you all alone, just the two of us. Robert C. Solomon writes in an essay called On Fate and Fatal, a quote, Especially fascinating are those seemingly insignificant encounters, coincidences, slips, and misunderstandings that in retrospect have momentous consequences, end quote. One seemingly insignificant event leads to everything that follows, or we go backward. Why can Morgan Strode not drop the keys off himself? This is not on Lori's usual route to school. What meeting does Morgan have that sets this chain of events in motion? And in the comic, the first death of Laurie Strode, we meet the fourth girlfriend of this group, Sally Winters. I'm sorry, I'm pausing to hear a crackle in my earphones, and I don't know if you can hear that. And I won't know until later. If there's a crackle and you can hear it, I'm sorry. In the comic, the first death of Laurie Strode, we meet the fourth girlfriend of this group, Sally Winters, who was homesick with the flu on Halloween, so she wasn't there on that fateful walk home for Michael to latch onto her. You would never think that being sick would be a blessing, but there you go, Lori says in her narration. If I don't see Halloween as a kid, if I don't see way too many other movies, I don't go to USC after high school. I don't drop out two years later. I don't take boring office jobs for years. I don't eventually latch onto the internet for friends, girlfriends, my ex-wife. We don't have our youngest daughter who was starting school right when the local elementary started a dual language program. I don't go back to college, partly to take a language class to help my daughter with her schoolwork. I don't end up on the speech team after a fellow student says they like how my speeches sound like I'm just telling them a story. I don't end up coaching the speech team later. I don't end up in grad school. I don't write my Groundhog Day Project blog or my master's thesis on how we present and invent self on the internet. I don't catch the attention of Sean German and Dave Palace of the Groundhog Minute podcast, which draws my attention to the whole Movies by Minute tribe. And I'm not here talking about the movie I saw for the first time nearly 40 years ago. Maybe it's not fate, but it's something. Determinism, causality, something. Destiny is not so much a necessary outcome, Solomon writes, as it is an outcome that is necessary given some larger sense of purpose. We find philosophy, we find religion, we find politics that give us purpose, tell us that life has meaning. But ultimately, maybe that bit from Terminator 2 is more apt. No fate, but that we make for ourselves. Lori's attentiveness allows her to circumvent the possible fate of being killed along with her friends on this particular Halloween night. I could be talking about some movie other than Halloween right now. If, say, the VHS tape we had on it broke one day when we were watching it and we didn't immediately replace it. Or maybe we would have had to replace it so I could be here, right now, talking about fate and death and the monsters we imagine so that we do not have to think about the ones that are out there in the real world. Anyway, we're not even halfway through this minute. Lori sneaks a glance back to the window. Lori's POV, street, the shape, and the station wagon are gone, but not forgotten. 
Ankle on Lori, she turns back from the window and back to her notebook. In the script, she has written on her notebook, Lori Strode is lonely. Second 26, we cut away to the schoolyard. In the script, the next scene is Loomis at the gas station, turned into Loomis at the phone booth in the film, a novelization. But on screen, we go to the elementary school as elementary school. Exterior, schoolyard, day. We're on North 2nd Street in Alhambra, just around the corner from where we just saw Michael. The playground is filled with children just getting out of school for the day. Some are dressed in Halloween costumes. Some carry pumpkins and orange and black streamers. Some carry jack-o'-lanterns. That's the script. I will talk more about costumes and obsessive internet searches when we get on Tommy's astronaut costume in minute 41, but I wanted to mention briefly the costumes seen here outside the elementary school. First of all, they seem like much better quality than a lot of the printed shirt-slash-cheap-plastic-mask combos that seemed to be popular at the time. Second of all, this is a pretty good collection given that the production purportedly just asked who knew some kids and got them to the set whenever they needed kids. Maybe the kids' Halloween costume chunk of the budget was huge, like Lori's few outfits cost 100 bucks, but we are not skimping on the Halloween costumes because that is important visual dressing, like the jack-o'-lanterns, like the fake leaves painted brown. We see 18 kids in costumes here. A baseball player, a gypsy, maybe. Two different flappers, one in red, one in green and white. Two clowns with very elaborate and fancy costumes. Two raggedy ands, two farmers, two cowboys, two princesses slash ballerinas, two girls in black, too vague to notice the details, but they definitely seem like costumes. A girl with a tambourine and a navy seaman. Notably no Star Wars costumes, but that was probably verboten in case there would be trademark issues. Even the two girls who seem to be dressed as flappers, we could talk about costumes in general, about Halloween traditions. The flapper coming out of the 19-teens and 20s is a sort of feminist image, but also often sexualized. The style popularized slash created by Coco Chanel. Uh, shorter hair, reduced curves, straight lines, hid the shape of a woman's body. Short hair and a looser, more carefree style of clothing, writes historian Mary Louise Roberts in an essay entitled Samson and Delilah Revisited, as a reflection of a new freedom of movement women enjoyed at the time in both professional and social circles. Roberts points out that other historians often present such a fashion trend, quote, as an element of modern consumerism and an agent of social control, which objectified and manipulated women as sexual objects, end quote. It's worth noting that to wear the proper flapper attire, one had to be naturally thin, or you had to diet and bind your breasts. Roberts calls it an illusion of freedom, not exactly effortless. But anyway, I find it strange that two little girls wear such costumes, and to be fair, their costumes may be specific references, copies of specific movie costumes perhaps, but this was going to come up at some point or another. What the Christian Science Monitor called in 2013, sexy Bo Peep, to skip a couple transition steps. But let's backtrack. Margaret Mead writes in an essay, Halloween, where has all the mischief gone? Of a, quote, safer world, a world in which adults still believed in adolescent mischief, and adolescents believed that mischief had its limits. Mild destructiveness was displaced quite long ago by angry destructiveness and carried out by alienated youngsters against anonymous adults, end quote. She's writing in 1975. Murray Leader describes the Halloween mischief Mead yearns for, quote, banging sacks of glass against walls, scrawling impolite words in soap on glass doors, and shooting upstairs windows with slingshots, end quote. Minute 57, we'll see Richie, Keith, and Lonnie, who were only being introduced to this minute, legend tripping at the Myers house, while they are out performing some of this destructiveness, actually, though we don't see it. 
One can assume that had they not been too afraid to go inside, they might have broken windows or old boards in the walls or the floor. Leader asks, quote, Is Halloween about candy, as Tommy claims? Is it a night for pranks and legend tripping, as Lonnie Elam and the other boys think? Is it about relaxed sexual mores, Annie Linda? Or is it a time to try on quasi-parental responsibilities, Rory? End quote. He quotes Nicholas Rogers from his book, Halloween, From Pagan Ritual to Party Night, quote, On a typical Halloween spree in interwar North America, fences were destroyed, signs and gates removed, roads barricaded, trolley cars immobilized, street lighting smashed, and outhouses tipped over, end quote. And Leslie Pratt Banatine from the book Halloween Nation, Behind the Scenes of America's Fright Night, quote, By the 1920s, October 31st mischief became known as the Halloween problem, and many adults began to question the need for a holiday that encouraged pranks and violence. What began as a good-natured tussle between children and adults on Halloween grew into a somewhat serious battle, end quote. But specifically regarding costumes, Leader references a 1974 psychological experiment that showed that aggressive behavior increased substantially when Halloween costumes were worn. Scott Fraser, who ran the experiment, tells NPR in a 2012 interview that, quote, the study challenged an idea that was universally believed at the time and is still widely held today. People who do bad things are bad people. Actions derived from character. Not so, Fraser says. Given the right circumstances, both children and adults can be induced to violate social norms. The context, not character, is king. Among the chief factors that can turn good kids into thieves, anonymity, end quote. The Christian Science Monitor suggests in 2013 that when Mead wrote in 1975, the holiday had been tamed, leaving the grown-ups firmly in charge. But so-called naughty girls' costumes, a centerpiece of the $8 billion Halloween seasonal industry, means it's back. Sexualized costumes, Jonathan Zimmerman writes, are just another way that adult consumerism has invaded American childhood. He continues... But there's also a way that we shortchange girls who are taught from the earliest ages that they must be sexual in appearance and demeanor. Boys get much more freedom to define themselves and how they look, but girls need to cultivate the look, slim, sassy, and provocative in order to be valued. For girls, then, it's less about being scary on Halloween and more about being sexy. Zimmerman offers a little history. Born in Ireland as a Celtic end-of-summer festival, Halloween morphed into All Saints Day, October 31st, otherwise known as All Hallows' Eve. Irish and Scottish immigrants brought it to America, where they reenacted the costume rivalry of the old country. By the turn of the century, Halloween had become an occasion for young men of every ethnicity to flout the rules of polite society. In 1900, medical students at the University of Michigan stole a headless corpse from their anatomy laboratory and propped it against the front doors of their building. In America's burgeoning cities, meanwhile, teenagers used Halloween to make gentle mayhem. This is the only evening on which a boy can feel free to play prank outdoors, and it is his delight to scare passing pedestrians, ring doorbells, and carry off the neighbor's gates, one tickled columnist wrote. Over the next few decades, however, Halloween hijinks devolved into much more serious vandalism. On Black Halloween of 1933, at the height of the Great Depression, hundreds of young men overturned automobiles, sawed down telephone poles, and taunted police. So schools and civic organizations began to sponsor parades and costume contests as part of a nationwide drive for a safe Halloween. Meanwhile, parents started to accompany their children on house-to-house -house visits in search of candy. Quote. But 
we will get into trick-or-treating more in minute 27, and I will preview a note from minute 55, 56. Even innocent little Tommy Doyle is not above playing a prank on Lindsay Wallace because it's Halloween, because he's got a costume to separate himself from the act. It is worth mentioning before we move on that while I grew up with the film Halloween, I did not grow up with the holiday Halloween. We were good Christians, went to church every Saturday, went to private school, and Halloween, the holiday, was pagan. Every Halloween, there was a fundraiser screening put on by the junior class, I believe, of some new, relatively wholesome movie so that local church members could have somewhere away from their homes to be so they wouldn't have to deal with trick-or-treaters. I never really got to dress up in costumes as a kid. I'm sure I played dress up a few times and I had several awesome sets of underoos, but until we had a couple costume dances in high school held in the fall, but having absolutely nothing to do with Halloween, costumes weren't a thing for me. The last year or two, playing Dungeons and Dragons weekly and making a few new nerdy friends, I've gotten to go costumed to Renfair, to the Pirate Invasion of Long Beach, to Medieval Times Dinner and Tournament, and I wish I had the time and money for a good cosplay at, like, Comic-Con or somewhere. <sighs> costumes would have been cool to have as a kid. I played make-believe plenty, but costumes would have made it so much more real. Tommy, Richie, Keith, and Lonnie seem to be the only kids here who do not have costumes. From the script. Tommy Doyle comes out of the door carrying a very large pumpkin. He is followed by three boys, Richie, Keith, and Lonnie, who are laughing and pushing him. Tommy, of course, is Brian Andrews. We've already talked about him. Richie, the shorter one on the left, is Mickey Yablans, whose father Irwin came up with the idea for The Babysitter Murders, which would become Halloween, and he distributed the film under the name Compass International. This is Mickey's first credit on IMDb, but he has nine acting credits ranging all the way to a short film in 2015. Keith, the taller one on the right, is Adam Hollander. This is his second of only five acting credits on IMDb. Lonnie, the one in the middle, is Brent LePage. This is his only credit on IMDb. Side note, Brian Andrews' character on Beretta was named Lonnie. We come into their bullying already in progress. Lonnie, how's the little witches? Which, I don't even get what that means. Richie, yeah. Keith, something, something, pumpkin. And then scripted, Tommy, leave me alone. Lonnie, he's going to get you. Lonnie runs up to Tommy and wiggles his fingers in Tommy's face. The other boys form a circle around Tommy and taunt him. In unison, they sing, he's going to get you, he's going to get you. Now, the audio of this was sampled in the beginning of White Zombie's cover of Casey and the Sunshine Band's I'm Your Boogeyman, sung by Rob Zombie, who would later go on to direct a remake of this film in 2007. Lonnie, the boogeyman is coming. Tommy, in the script, says, no, he's not. In the film, he just says, leave me alone. And the minute ends. <laughs> it's a big minute for having very little going on. It's all about the theme. It's all about fate. It's about destiny. It's about death coming to a small town. And the streets being scary. Especially when you don't know who's dangerous. It's a man in a mask, but on Halloween, there's so many people out there with masks. But it even comes down to every day that isn't Halloween. Is it the mask that makes him scary or just the mask that makes him anonymous? He's scary because you don't know who he is. He's just anyone but like a regular serial killer. As we talked about way back in minutes one and two when I was talking with my sisters, I think this clip got in. 
like serial killers don't work that way. They're just regular people until you know they're a serial killer. So many of them are charming. I don't know if this was in last minute or later with a different guest because I quoted these last week, but one of them brings up Ted Bundy. They was a charming guy, but yeah, he killed people. In the novelization of Halloween, young Michael Myers at age six is described as charming. Fate. Anonymity. These are the things that Halloween plays with. <laughs> that is all for Minute 17. The Michael Myers Minute is a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. You can stalk us on Twitter and Facebook at Myers Minute or Instagram Michael Myers Minute. Or join our Facebook listeners group, 45 Lambkin Lane. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us a nice review if you like what you hear. And if you really like what you hear, or maybe you want me to get some better microphones or soundproofing, you can help us out by donating through Patreon at patreon.com slash Myers Minute. Until next time. See ya.